0: With us today is Bob Greifeld. He wrote most recently the book Market Mover, Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ. Bob is the former CEO and chairman of NASDAQ. The book is great. He shares stories about his time there, the challenges he faced, the decisions he's made. NASDAQ, uh, for those of you who don't know, is one of the world's largest stock exchanges. It was very, very focused on tech uh, for a very long time, may still be. We'll find that out in a second. Uh, Bob joined uh, as leader... In the uh, early 2000s, um, probably right when, from his perspective, he shouldn't have joined, but we'll talk with him about that. Uh, it was, you know, things were in turmoil and, and Bob's is a story of, of turnaround and bringing in some big companies, kind of setting it up for success Uh, He dealt with the dot-com bust, economic headwinds, technology disruption, the implosion of the U.S. housing market, the global crash that followed. And uh, during uh, Bob's leadership, the NASDAQ market value increased by 2,000 percent. So not bad by any standards. Bob, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: It's my pleasure to be here.
0: We're going to we're going to talk about your time. Like I, I oftentimes I'm interviewing thought leaders and we're talking about ideas. And, and here it's much more interesting to talk about, you know, your own experience and what led to the ideas that are in your book. And, and I kind of want to take a, a, a walk down memory lane, if you will, in your time. And I want to start with the opening book of the line. I'm sorry, the opening line of the book, which is I'm six months too late. Right now, why did you think that? What 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 was the time and why did you think that?
1: Well, one is I make very clear, not just in that situation, but in other situations, I do not possess a magic wand. And I also have a firm belief that the difference between success and failure are two sides of a very thin dime. That is, you are not preordained to succeed. You're not preordained to fail. So in that context, when I said I'm too late, there might not be enough good things I can do in the time frame required to turn the ship around.
0: Got it. And, and what was happening? Describe the moment that you were coming into NASDAQ.
1: Yeah. So when I got uh, hired by NASDAQ, it was an unusual hire. And that was born of the fact that there was some level of desperation there uh, to reach out to somebody like myself. So NASDAQ had uh, pioneered an exchange without a trading floor. The SEC had changed the rules where competitors were popping up with technology that was probably two generations f- forward of what NASDAQ had. So every single day, NASDAQ was losing money, and we did certain- did not have an unlimited balance sheet. Every day, we were losing market share uh, to these upstart uh, competitors. So we didn't have that much time to, one, stem the bleeding, and then, two, reverse course and get on a positive trajectory. Why did you take the job? Well, one is, at first, I didn't want to take the job because I had been an entrepreneur for 10 years and I'd sold my company in 1999 and was with a great large company called SunGuard Data Systems, which I assumed I would leave at some point and go back to my entrepreneurial roots. Uh, And uh, when you think about NASDAQ, you thought the opposite. You thought of an organization that was part of the regulator that wanted to spin out from the regulator and then go on its own for-profit public uh, motive. Uh, But clearly, the NASDAQ I went to in 2003 was a far, far cry from anything that would be small and entrepreneurial. So that was my hesitation at the time.
0: And why'd you end up doing it?
1: Well, one, I realized that it was an opportunity you could not pass up, right? So as you uh, thought about it as I talked to my wife, I realized, okay, this is something that you have to try uh, to do. And I had a clearer thought mind in my mind that I could, in fact, uh, bring a lot of good to the organization. And after I was there for a while, I recognized how naive I was in terms of what all the challenges were for NASDAQ. I understood part of the elephant in terms of what we had to do, but I certainly did not understand the complete part of the job required.
0: You you tell the story of how in your view you got the job. And I think it's an interesting story about how you approached the interview process. And and it's instructive for people. So if you could just share very briefly like what, you know, what your approach was. Basically, you were up against a, a competitor where you felt like, you know, this guy had the edge on you in terms of the the sort of form and and experience of someone who they were looking for. And so you took a certain approach
1: yeah, so what was interesting here, this fellow I had interviewed myself when I was on the board of Knight Securities to be the CEO of Knight. So I, I had a firsthand knowledge of how he performed in a one-hour back-and-forth session, and he was quite, quite uh, impressive. And I said, why should I compete on his ground rules or the normal ground rules? So that last interview, when I realized, you know, I knew I was had competition for the job, and then I knew I really wanted the job. I said, how do you then change the substance of the interview, the meeting to suit what you can do? So I knew exactly what had to be done. So I took control of the first 15, 20 minutes. And I said, OK, these are the five things we're going to get done in the first hundred days and went through them point by point by point. So that was my strong suit, not the you know particular articulation that's required going back and forth, question and answer, but really said, here is the agenda. Here are your problems, and here's what I can do uniquely to help solve them. I love that. So now I'm going to um, tell you something you didn't know, uh, which is
0: I, right as you were coming on board, this is in the early 2000s, all of your direct reports, who you didn't know very well at that time, were uh, going through setting goals for their businesses. And uh, and I was asked to come in as a, as a consultant to help them do that. Right. and. And I sat down and it was a colleague of mine who had asked me to help her come in and do that. And so I sat down with all of your direct reports who you didn't know very well at this point, or even maybe at all. And they were really struggling to set goals for their parts of the business. I mean, they really couldn't do it. And and I finally, I stopped the meeting and I said, guys, I don't get what's going on here. You, you know, you're the leaders of this business. Why are you unable to set goals for the next year? And they said, really in unison, well, there's a new leader coming in. We don't know what he's going to want to do. And so we're waiting to find out what he wants to do before we set goals. And I said... How do you think he's going to figure it out? You're the leaders of the business. You <laughs> yeah. got to go to him and tell him, here's what I think we should do. And then let him have a reaction to that. You're going to like, let him come in and just sit around and go, I don't know. What do you want me to do? And I, and I really said it like that. I mean, like I didn't pull any punches and, and we got somewhere, but I'm curious now. I've never been able to ask you this, but I'm curious, like when you walked in, what you saw with your senior leadership team and what impression you had?
1: Well, this is certainly a different podcast podcast. imagine. So that's a great counterpoint. So I would say in a certain way, the people you met with were not that incorrect. So when I covered in the book, so uh, I came in there and I uh, acted as the autocratic CEO. And I thought that was fundamentally necessary because, again, we did not have the time uh, to continue. So when I came in there, I knew exactly what had to be done on the transaction side, on the market side, right? So that point I was clear on. But to make myself sound a little more humble uh, than those last comments, what I didn't know was really the listings business, uh, the fact that government relations was a big part of the job, and also the uh, corporate communications, the publicity, the public-facing part of it. So there, I was incredibly naive, and I needed to be humbled to recognize how little I knew. But with respect to the transaction side, when I'd been a software entrepreneur, we built our trading systems to tie into the NASDAQ marketplace. I was a founder of an ECN that competed with NASDAQ. So I knew more about what the task had to be than those uh, those folks did. And the fact is that, obviously, a lot of those folks didn't survive, and in the book, we cover that two of the folks you met with didn't make it till eight o'clock the first day I started. <laughs> and I said, we're going in a, a different direction. We appreciate your service, but you know it's best that we part ways now and not uh, drag it out. So I, I would say, and that's one of the lessons of the book, you have rules that you live by and you have to run a uh, really a organization that gets built on consensus. You want to have the buy in from the troops. At the end of the day, The engagement of the people in the organization determines its success. But like any other rule, there are times when you have to ignore that. In the early days of NASDAQ, I said, "Okay, I've got a certain amount of time. I've lived this world. We've got to do this. right?" And so it was more marching orders back then, and it changed as the organization itself evolved.
0: So that's totally consistent with your, you know, you sort of said, here's the first five, here's the five things. You mentioned this earlier in our conversation. Right. Here's the five things I'm going to do. Get the right people on board, reduce bureaucracy, embrace fiscal discipline, overhaul technology, and stop being satisfied with number two. Number two. Right. So I have two questions here. One is, you know, so you just mentioned that you let go of uh, a couple of people before 8 a.m. the first day. And that's a bold move, obviously. And I'm curious about How you knew to do that, I want to give you a counterpoint, which is here's what goes on in my head. I'm thinking, I don't know if you've had enough time yet to know whether they can perform under your leadership. And and the story I think of is Alan Mulally, who was CEO of Boeing, of course, and then Ford. And he, he had the same kind of turnaround as you did, right? He was looking at Ford and he turned around Ford and he did it with, I think, 17 or 18 of the original 18 or 19, meaning he lost one person, but ultimately he turned around the business with all of those senior leaders. I'm not advocating that that's the right way to do it, but I'm curious to understand how you knew that I'm moving in a new direction and there's a bunch of people who are just not going to make it.
1: So I would say this. One, I knew that the organization wanted to be engaged in a discussion, a debate in terms of what kind of company we were and what kind of company we were about to, uh, to become. And uh, I, again, did not feel at the time for that organizational discussion. So I knew that as soon as people came to work that day and that two of the senior people were gone, they knew that, okay, it was a different day, a uh, uh, different person in charge, and all the discussions that people wanted to have about how, what we should be ended, And they wanted to know what i wanted to get done so we stopped that dialogue i thought that was important i need the whole organization to get to work uh that that day right so that was i think probably a more dire situation than ford uh there but i would say this uh that where i agree is the vast majority of the senior leaders led by adina my successor were there who self-identified, self-selected, say, I want to be part of this culture that's going to be performance-based. We're going to weigh, measure, and count everything. We're going to be competitive. So those both people revealed themselves. Others obviously resigned. And one of my management mantras is we try to promote from within 80% of the time, right? 20% you go outside. If you don't do 100% you know, internally, then the culture gets too insular. It doesn't extend. It doesn't evolve but 80% is obviously an overwhelming number of people coming from inside. And the feeling is very strongly that when you're there, right, uh, you basically have been interviewing for years. You know the pluses and the minuses of the person, the developments and the strains. As good as you can get at interviewing somebody, whether you want to do psychological tests, background checks, it's still a relative crapshoot compared to hiring your own people. So that's kind of the north star I go with, but then again, the message you'll have in the book is you got to do what you got to do when it's there. So I didn't right. have time. Right, our market share was down to fourteen percent. know we go below ten, then I lose the listings business. Right, and then I lose the entire franchise. Right, and I didn't have that much time to uh, continue to burn the money every day. So that was that was the dominant fact. I always say there's so many good facts, and the decisions you make are never black and white. Right, it's always some shade of gray. So the dominant fact here was speed of, of the essence. I'm not saying that is the proper management technique over, over a period of time, but it was the proper one in that period of time, and certainly we survived, you know, to live the other days. Bob,
0: I love I love that frame,
1: which is the dominant fact. I think one of the
0: one of the consistent things I've seen in. The strongest leaders, and, and you know, I know this intimately from really successful leaders that I coach, but also, you know, other leaders that I talk to is I think the number one thing they're able to do is to distinguish signal from noise, right? It's to say there's a whole lot of things going on. This is the one we're going to respond to because this is the one that's going to make the biggest difference. And, and this idea of there's a lot of facts going around, but this is the dominant fact that we have to deal with and we have to face. Is uh, it's really powerful? It's critical.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> and what, <throat> what I would say with that, and you know, directly related, you know, you you've got a chance to meet many CEOs, and so have I. And uh, what I've noticed with every single one of them, they work very hard, and they're very smart. So why do they fail? Right. In my mind, they fail primarily because they choose to work not on the wrong things, but on the less right things. Right. You have to pick the things that have the best levered use of your time right Right. and you have to be comfortable with doing other things that don't have a lever not well or even bad right your to-do list you can never get through the whole to-do list so you have to focus on the things that matter you have to focus things that lever your time across the organization across your customers uh there so that's related to finding what is the dominant fact?
0: Yeah, you gotta be willing to get B's and C's in some stuff. And for high achievers, we basically want to get A's in everything. And what you're exactly. saying is
1: choose yeah. two
0: subjects you want to get an A in, or maybe one subject you want to get an A in, and be comfortable with B's and C's and everything else.
1: You got it. That's All right. I'm exactly hoping that I'm my
0: saying. children are not listening to this because I don't think this applies to <laughs> school in the same way no. as it applies to business. But I totally yeah. resonate with what you're saying from business. Right. Um, what's so interesting, too, is that this is so counter to so much of the sort of leader methodology that you hear these days about. You come into an organization and the very first thing you do is you go on a listening tour and you spend nine months, you know, listening to hearing whatever. And what you're saying is that might be great for an ongoing concern in which we want to make a marginal difference in the growth. But we were in a crisis and in a turnaround, you you, you have to you have to really make some drastic edgy, risky, very bold, strong moves to communicate something.
1: So uh, related to that, I say it in the book, and uh, you always have to seek effectiveness first and efficiency second, right? Right. So you have to be effective. We have to survive. That's the definition. When I first got there, the definition of effectiveness was survive. Survive meant we had to have growing market share. We had to be getting a path to profitability before our balance sheet ran out. So that's important. Then after that, on the efficiency, then you do the proper management things and develop that structure over time. Uh, and when I saw the delay in the Model 3, uh, I said, okay, they're hyper-efficient of how they want to make it. But first, got to be effective and make the thing. And then you can improve the manufacturing processes later. Right. And so I always thought about that. And we did 47 acquisitions. And the first thing I would always say, let's make sure this acquisition is working for us. We can always make it more efficient. We have the rest of our lives to do that. That being said, we did it very quickly most of the time, but you always have to keep those antenna clearly uh, straight in terms of what your job is.
0: Right. Let's go to – so get the right people on board. That was your first thing. And, and right. was that primarily a function, Bob, of being very clear about what your message was and making some very quick decisions as to who was on board and who wasn't?
1: No, I, I think uh, the right people on board is a constant process. But why I say that is you have to develop a one, three, five year strategic plan of where you're driving the bus. But you also have to recognize that you will be wrong every single time of where you're going. The road will change, the circumstances change, the competitive dynamic change, the market changes. So you have to have the athletes, you know, the managers on the bus who can then respond to that, right? And you can certainly pigeonhole yourself in terms of getting a content expert in one job, but that job changes, right? And if they don't have that ability. So I fundamentally think that you are successful in life by responding to stimuli that's presented to yourself. And I would say to our managers that your job is no more complicated than a single-celled organism. And I said, a single cell organism knows how to respond to stimuli. That's your job. Be alert to the stimuli, respond uh, to it. So again, totally
0: counterintuitive to what, you know, you, you read in a lot of leadership writing these days, which is you don't want to be reactive to circumstances. You want to be sort of thoughtful and intentional and strategic about the direction. But you, you're, you're saying something very different.
1: You're saying, actually, you kind of want to be reactive. Yeah. And, you know, it's not too hard to square that circle. Right. So you're reactive. You know, if you, you know, are on a path right and you want to be dictatorial, this is the only path. Then I I think you'll find yourself uh, wrong more often than not. And so, uh, you know, this is dwelling a little bit. But, you know, my my view of the world was that the customers gave us the small things in terms of where we had to go with our product or direction. And they're important, right? certainly important day to day. But in terms of the broad strategic direction, the broad product set, you have to come up with that yourself. There's no amount of market research. And then they say, well, how do you make that decision? Well, at the end of the day, you kind of make it in a gut feel. But the fact is you build your database, right? You get your database as wide as you can. You get all the material in there. And then your artificial intelligence, your machine learning, learning in your brain, Eventually kicks in and tells you, okay, this is the the path we have to go on. Right. Uh, there,
0: I'm curious about. So I write. I don't know how much you know about me or the work that I do, but yeah. I write a lot about emotional courage and the willingness to feel as a as a as a um, critical path to the willingness to act. And what I'm so curious about, Bob, is if you can bring yourself back to, you know, you're stepping into this turnaround situation, you're making some bold moves, you're designing a strategy, you're driving it through, what were you feeling in that moment? I mean, were you scared? Were you, uh, uh, you know, full-on running the race as fast as you could and ambitious? And it could be, like, a number of different things. But I'm wondering, like, you step into this huge challenge and – And I'm just curious emotionally what was going on for you at that moment.
1: So I I would say a a dominant thought that came back, and sometimes I was sleeping, is you felt like you were jumping off of a cliff where you could not see the the bottom. So I knew I was taking steps where I couldn't be guaranteed that it would get the outcome we we wanted. And that ties back to my comment about success and failure is not preordained. So it really was that feeling – of jumping off a cliff, you have to do it. You know, you don't want to do it, but you don't have a choice to do it because you, you know, at the end of the day, you first and foremost have to, su- have to survive. And the flip side of that, which I cover in the book, is when I decided it was time to retire. I knew that the jumping off the cliff feeling was past. I knew the organization did not need me as much as it did, uh, you know, in 2003. And I think on a very positive note, the management team uh, was very strong and was able to then, you know, to carry on in a very successful way.
0: You um, you were you said earlier you were 14 percent market share. You couldn't drop below 10. When you left, what was your market share? we were in the 40s. In the 40s. Okay, so massive. And part of that, I'm assuming, was your acquisition strategy. You bought 45 companies during your time.
1: No, I, I would describe it this way. So we knew there are limits to what the U.S. equity markets per, could provide to us. So once we, uh, one, got our technology in order, got our market share solidified and in slowly up over the years, we said, OK, what do we do next? We lifted our head up and uh, said so two things. One, we had to get more assets. So we went into U.S. equity options, right? We have been in pure equity play and we had to get more global, right? We are clear clearly just a US play. So we went cross asset, cross geography, I think, is how we really had our, our massive success. And then we also recognized that we had running our businesses was some of the best technology on the planet. And we productized that and we're able to sell that to others.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's one that was one of your that was your fourth, fourth point, which is overhaul your technology. And that that yeah. was uh... and
1: we, we didn't. Yeah, we wanted to overhaul not to catch up, but to give go further. Right uh, there. And and we had to because, you know, our markets were so intense. The performer requirements are so high. So if we went to Africa, we went to the Middle East, we went to Europe, we went to Asia. You know, we really were kind of stepping back in time in terms of what their requirements were versus what we had to develop in the States. Right. So we're in a great position to lever that
0: um,
1: and your competitors weren't doing that. A couple tried, Uh, you know, LLC tried, New York Stock Exchange tried, but, you know, we, you know, uh, we have a very, very high market share and provision of technology to other exchanges, to regulators and increasingly broker dealers. Right.
0: Um, You talked about uh, and and I think about this in terms of your acquisitions, uh, but also just broadly about encouraging autonomy while fostering integration. You talk about this in the book. I think that's the billion dollar question. How do you encourage autonomy at the same time as you create integration? I'm curious if you could share, because this is true, by the way, not only for integrating businesses, but for individuals. Like, how do you, you know, manage someone so that they have autonomy and they're part of a team and they're moving in the right direction and they're moving collectively and in alignment with everybody else? So, you know, any, any hints or tricks or thoughts that you have around that?
1: Well, let's start with the compensation side. So what I say is people don't do what they're told to do. They do what they're paid to do. Right. So as crass as that sounds. So when you think about it, we had stock options for every employee. So stock on a compensation side was unifying. Right. Because the stock was performance was determined by how the entire firm did. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when they had their individual goals, so we would have, as I said, our culture was the way measure and count everything. And the last thing I wanted to do was to have a situation where at the end of the year, people had to be nice to me to get a big bonus. So the beginning of the year, every single employee had to say in great detail, these are the 10, 15 things that will determine success in my job for this year. End of the year, we say, okay, how'd you do on these 10 or 15 things? And it was a function. And that would determine your pay. I didn't have to like you. You didn't have to like me. But we had a common understanding this was the job. So we spent so much time in the beginning of the year focused on the job. Now, part of that obviously was playing well uh, with others. Uh, because the further up you go, uh, the org chart, the more you become interdependent there. So we had compensation plans associated with joint goals across different lines of business there uh but i think the greater good was for these folks to focus on their burger king and excel in that burger king and then the icing on the cake was integration together now if one unit had to work together with another unit all day every day i said probably the organization chart is wrong right so i looked i came at it that way Mm -hmm. i said let me make sure this organization is smart with respect to what the daily work is. I guess if you have to go across an organization boundary, as well as you might have an integrated firm, there's a friction associated with that. So I want to make sure all the proper work was within the smallest atomic unit possible. And that was, I think, one of the key parts of our success.
0: Uh, you talk about trust and challenging decisions that you have to make, which... Uh, angered people, and I'm specifically thinking about the conversation that you had with Jamie Dimon that you that you uh, talk about in the book, where you know he cursed you out on the phone. Can you talk about that dynamic tension of of the necessity to make hard decisions and at the same time to really maintain important relationships?
1: Sure. Well, one, you know, the Jamie Dimon conversation, I think, it was somewhat unique uh, there because we we're going through the lobbying for Dodd-Frank and there was a lot of emotion in the air. Right, And we were speaking for open markets and we wanted to have central clearing and JP Morgan with the strongest balance sheet, you know, central clearing wouldn't hurt them, but it would kind of equalize them against some of their uh, competitors. Competitor. And, you know, that's to be expected. But yeah, what you're getting at is a great point is that exchanges have broker dealers as their customers. And the exchanges are there to narrow the friction costs to spread in the market and thereby, by definition, narrowing the profit opportunity for the market uh, participants. So that has always an underlying natural tension to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we live in a world now where I think that's easier to maintain relationships and people understand one uh, competitors. Or also uh, necessary partners, you know, depending upon a particular role. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a bigger issue back in 2003 than it is in 2019, uh, 2020. Because most everybody has a uh, multidimensional relationship within their ecosystem.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm curious as I actually think about that story of JB Diamond, and I think about you know you don't pull punches in the book. So you know you you talk about specific people and. They don't always show up in the most beautiful of ways. And and I'm actually also thinking broadly, like in terms of concept. My so full disclosure, my father was a specialist on the stock exchange. So, you know, you don't speak so glowingly about specialists. Like, you know, you sort of think of them as dinosaurs and and, and my grandfather talk about, you know, the, that concept of dinosaurs was also on the market and, and was a specialist. And I remember going down to the floor of the market when I was a kid and like watching people, you know, I mean, they, weren't, they were doing this more in the American than the New York, but hand signals. And, and you talk about that. And I'm just curious about what it's like and what happens for you, again, either emotionally or psychologically or what the challenge is, if there was any challenge, of writing... About people and things where you knew people would read it and feel, you know, criticized or like not painted in the perfect light that they always might want to be seen in. And I'm just curious about how that was for you.
1: So let's make clear in the book, Bob doesn't always come out looking great, right? <laughs> so we spend a full chapter on Facebook, which is certainly one of the low points, if not the low point, of my tenure. So we didn't shy away from things that are difficult for Bob. But I would say this, you know, with respect to the specialist in particular, you know, it's always difficult to me and I think unfair to do revisionist history, right? So the specialist in their day before the advent of technology, uh, you know, a trading floor specialist, the floor broker was a very efficient way of conducting transactions, right? So you had to centralize that. Now, computers and communication technology evolved to the point where you could do a better job than the physical specialist, the floor broker. And I would say that I knew our transmission speeds were always faster than the fastest runner on the floor of any exchange. Right. Right? So you have people literally running to get an order, and I can move electrons at the speed of light. I said that's you know not really a fair fight. So the specialist, the floor, did their job for their particular point in history. It was time for the electronics to come forward. And you know, really improve upon uh, the market. So that's nothing personal. It's just right. a fact of life that happened there. So your grandfather and your father played <laughs> a very important role in their time, right? right. And don't forget, we, we didn't have computers in our hands back then. Right? We didn't have right, a telecommunications right. network. Uh, we had a telephone, basically. Right. Uh, but yeah, and
0: I'm not—I'm not really that worried about my father, and my grandfather. But I am curious about when you, like, when you wrote about the conversation with Jamie Diamond, and he's cursing you on the phone. I'm sure Jamie doesn't want to be seen as a guy who's sitting on the phone cursing it at you. Like, but yeah. I don't know. Did well, you check that with it, him beforehand? Take, did you talk to him no, about it?
1: No, I did it? not. I, I did not. But I would take it this way. Uh, Jamie Diamond was a passionate uh, uh, advocate for their position, right? A h- hard stop. And I was a passionate advocate for our position. So I had no uh, no professional issue, or personal issue with right. uh, with with Jamie's feelings uh, on, on that. So you know that's kind of how life, life goes, right? And so you know JP Morgan's a great customer, of NASDAq, we use our investment banking services for many years, in addition to being a customer on the market side there. But, you know, with respect to central clearing, we had different points of view.
0: Right. What was your hardest decision that you made over the time that you were there?
1: Well, I think the hardest decision you make is when you have uh, to let people go where they're innocent victims. Right. So to the extent that somebody's not doing their job right the way it needs to be done, that's easy. Right. To the extent that you're putting two companies together right, and there's two people doing the same job and both of them are very competent at, at the job and you just have to choose one. That, to me, was always the, 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 the hardest decision to, uh, to make.
0: Right. So
1: you were at NASDAQ 13 years. What was your high point? Yeah. Well, I think that the high point was somewhat in in the leaving in that I felt so proud of the management team, right? Uh, That, you know, I felt, you know, some paternal uh, feeling for it. So we talk about, you know, the fact that 80% of the people we groomed, you know, I'd worked with Adina Friedman, my successor for 12 years, and she had been intimately involved with the finalization of the team. So that, you know, I always said that was my final grade how that team was going to do, uh, led by Dana. So, I'm I'm quite proud about that. So I think the beginning and the end, you know, the beginning Mm -hmm. was clearly unique. I didn't, uh, I was capable of making many mistakes, which could have, uh, you know, basically represented an existential threat to the company. I certainly made some mistakes, but not so many that we didn't, you know, be able to get to a brighter future.
0: In some ways, at the beginning, I wonder whether there was something a little bit easier than in the middle, because... Yes, you could have made decisions that were an existential threat, but the thing was already on the ground dying. And so, like, maybe it would have continued. I don't know that that would have been your fault. So there's like, I'm wondering if you had more of an excitement and freedom to take risks than maybe you did later on when it started to breathe more life.
1: Yeah, uh, I don't know. But I, I hear the logic you're saying, but that certainly wasn't the. Thought That's not how I had it felt. in my head. That's not how no, it felt. No, no, no. I owned it. You take the job, you own it, right? So, can you, if it imploded in my first week, I might point fingers, but by the third week, I owned it, right? Uh, yeah. You know, at that yep. point. Right? Anything
0: you regret or which you had done differently?
1: Well, obviously, Facebook, we wish we had done uh, uh better, and I certainly regret that. I'm Can you tell us very, we... very quickly what for people who haven't read the book, uh,
0: what what Facebook, you know, what you're talking about with Facebook?
1: Well, the the IPO day of Facebook was in, you know, basically unmitigated disaster, which we were primarily responsible for. And what happened to try to answer the question quickly, I recognize that the blame was primarily me, right? So it's primarily me because I had established a culture where the technology people had too much of a free reign, and the technology people developed this IPO software to be perfect and to be the enemy of the good. Unique set of circumstances with Facebook; it could have the code could have run for another thousand years and never uncovered this weakness in it. But Facebook was unique. And coming out of it, I realized that I had established a culture and the business unit that ran the business didn't have any real power to stand up to the technologist. So I had to really change the culture in some dramatic ways. And a classical CEO move when you have a problem like this is to fire everybody associated with it. So counted to, you know, it makes you feel good. But, you know, in this situation, that would have been the wrong, the easy but wrong thing uh, to do. I had to rebuild the organization. And what happened, the technology people who were accustomed to being basically lord of the manor, eventually, and it wasn't too long, they quit right? because they wanted to go back uh, to a situation where it was less, less structured there. And these are great people. And if I had to do a startup business, they were the right people to do it. But NASDAQ was not that kind of environment, nor was the market demanding it. So that was a… Difficult time because also obviously got a lot of general publicity outside of the business world Mm -hmm. and we felt, you know, responsible.
0: And arguably, like what you talked about in terms of the transition or the turning point that that was, that oftentimes – you know, this, this statement, what got you here won't get you there, that you needed to do the tech, the technology people needed to roll the roost for a while in order to overhaul your technology. And at a certain point, that probably never would have ended had there not been some kind of a disaster that says, OK, we got to make a shift here, because otherwise, you know, it would it, it, it might sort of draw away from your success, but never actually be big enough that it would may, force you to make a transition.
1: Well, that is incredibly insightful. So I knew, you know, in 2003, I changed, you know, we would come out with a software release once a year and that software would be bulletproof. So we had to look like our competitors who were coming out with software every week or month or day or something like that. So we went more to that side. And that was the right decision. At that point, we would have been out of business if we didn't do that. Every day was a new day. But then the market had matured and we didn't mature back. So I knew there were some of the software engineers from 2003 who no longer with us who were saying, hey, Bob, I knew this was going to happen. You were wrong to change the culture. But I was right then but wrong not to kind of go full circle there. Right. And Facebook forced us to then recognize that we had to act more, more and more like a battleship as the market matured as opposed to a little PT boat. Bob, what's next for you? Well, right now, I'm chairman of Virtu, which is a uh, technology trading firm. So I'm on the other side dealing with exchanges and uh, complaining about how much they charge for market data. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when I came out of uh, – and that wasn't really directly in the plan, but it's a great uh, a great situation for me. And the founder is my long-term friend, uh, you know, Vinny Biolos And uh, so between Vinny and Doug, we have a uh, great professional and personal relationship. But I came out of NASDAQ again – wanting to get back to my entrepreneur roots. So I'm more involved with fintech companies, not really some startup, but pretty much smaller companies where I invest personal money, I serve on the board, and we can really make a difference over time. That's the, the most fun for me.
0: One thing that comes up for you that you want to leave our listeners with?
1: Well, I, I would say this. Uh, what I remember reading a business book on Bill Gates' early days. And in it, he said, "I've never succeeded in anything I've in, in, tried to the first time, right?" So, in terms of like, what's a guiding principle? I, I said, "Okay, if Bill Gates is saying that, you know, that's good advice for me." So, I, I think I have been successful by not expecting to be instantaneously, you know, uh, achieving what I want to, but by staying with it. I always believe great execution will beat great strategy every day of the week. So you just execute, come to work every day. And then related to that, and then I'll I'll wrap up, is people always ask me, how do you get to where you are, Bob? How can you be that successful? And I said, wait, hold on a second. Uh, The first thing is I never had a career plan, right? What I did know though, is I wanted to do things that I really had passion for. And if you have passion for it, you'll do it well. And then other opportunities present themselves. And I hate the concept of people trying to manage a career path where they have a step on a ladder where they're going to tie up a year or two of their precious life, you know, to do that, right? You should not do that. You need to find things that you want to do. And it's also important to recognize that when I say you have that passion, that doesn't mean at seven o'clock on a Monday morning, you're saying, thank God the weekend's over, right? Because, you know, we all have ups and downs as human beings, but it means that by and large, you're very engaged. You had great satisfaction, great passion for what you're doing.
0: You know, you remind me of one of the one of my favorite quotes. I was just in London and I went to the Churchill War Rooms, which is definitely worth going to if you're in London. Yes. And and there was this one quote that I remember from that that I really love, which is his quote, which is Success is stumbling from failure to failure without the loss of enthusiasm, or with no loss of enthusiasm. That's a great like quote. Stumbling, yeah. stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> I mean,
1: I think. And, well, he had a lot of failures too, so I yeah. can agree with that quote more. That's the way I look at yeah, it. You just keep really it, great. and then you will get there. You'll great. get
0: there. We've been talking right. with Bob Greifeld. His book is "Market Mover: Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ." Uh, Bob, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: I appreciate. It. Keep up the great work.
0: Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.